Please find your way in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. And the last verse in that great chapter about the resurrection, verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. My message today is going to be from chapter 16. And I want to speak to you today in order to encourage you all in your work for the Lord, your work for God. Verse 58 of chapter 15 sets us up with the context for my message from chapter 16. So we'll begin here. Um, Until I heard about Mission Road Bible Church, I'd never heard even the name of Prairie Village. I was reading yesterday some of the interesting history of this part of your world, and I had no idea that Prairie Village was so tiny, just 22,000 people. Uh, But I'm guessing most of you probably don't live here. Is that right? Times have changed, haven't they? Very few people today walk to church. Nobody in America, but you you drive a car to cross the street here, don't you? But um, (laughs) times have changed. You probably come here because of your desire for all that happens here and, and, and what, what you see God doing in this place and, and the way in which God speaks to your soul. And so I, I'm guessing again that in this room there is a, a cross-section of people from right across the broader Kansas City area. What is your mission field? In years gone by, it would have been easy. You could have answered that. You, you would have said, our mission field is uh, the mission road area of Prairie Village because that's where we live and that's where we attend church. And people even name their churches based on the road, not even, it wasn't called Prairie Village Bible Church. And and so you, you knew that, but times have changed. And people drive across town to go uh, to church, and it's no surprise you drive across town for good barbecue in this country, don't you? And so if you can get good soul food, you're willing to travel. And that's, of course, what happens as times change and transport changes and churches change, but let me ask it again. What is your mission field? I read yesterday that the metro area of Kansas City contains nearly 2.5 million souls. And then there's the 150,000 souls in Kansas City, Kansas. I guess that means that there's an awful lot of people in Missouri that want to live somewhere called Kansas. But um, the the reality is that as you look out there, that's quite a mission field, isn't it? Two and a half million souls. It's like London. Um, And Jesus says to you, I love your mission statement, because Jesus says, Go and make disciples 
And you're supposed to look at this mission field and say, right, Kansas City, two and a half million souls. We have to make disciples. Do you ever feel somewhat intimidated by that? I mean, how, how, how do you reach a city this big? It can be overwhelming. When you think of how much work there is to do in order to reach a city of this size, it can just be daunting. And here's a verse to stir us all up. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, there are some people in this room who hear that, and you're probably, you're probably saying, oh, no, who is this guy from England, jolly old England? Um, and I'm asking you now, how do you, how do you feel when you hear that? and you think about your mission field. I know, um, I haven't forgotten. We're not supposed to think too much about what we feel. We're supposed to move on from what we feel to what we think, and what, from what we think to what we know, right? You heard that somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but if you're, I'm not changing that, but if you'll indulge me for a minute, how does that challenge to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, faced with such a mission field, how does it make you feel? And you know you've got the Great Commission, the, the words of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, saying, this is your task, to make disciples of every creature. How do you feel with that? Maybe you're one of those rare people, and you hear a command like that, and you're all fired up, and you're just, you're just raring to go. You're chomping at the bit, and you're saying, yeah, let me at them. All right, let me tell you how the other people in the room feel, if that's you. I, I feel intimidated. Often, when I get out of the basement office that I inhabit in our church, and I get out onto the streets of London, and I see the, the sea of people, the millions of souls, and all the lonely people, I'm not asking where do they all come from, I'm asking where are they all going? And I know the answer to that. And it, it, it burdens my soul, and I'm looking into their faces and seeing the souls of people who are lost and heading for a lost eternity, all because they do not know the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who, sent his, who came into the world to save sinners. 
And then we have the answer. It's the message, the good news of the Bible. Maybe you've never, you stepped in here today and you've never heard it. It's the good news that full forgiveness is available through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And it is free. It's not by works. You, just, you must repent of your sin. You must put all your trust in Jesus, not in your own efforts. But salvation, forgiveness is free. And you can have that forgiveness today if you will repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. It's so simple. And we have the answer, don't we? And they are lost and there are so many of them, and what do we do, and how does that make you feel? That's my question. It can be intimidating. I remember as a new boy in, in boarding school, and I was being pushed into the gymnasium and made to fight somebody who was my uh, sort of obvious opponent and the people from the year above kind of shoved us together and formed a circle and we had to fight it out and you know how that goes maybe you don't do that in America but um, the, uh, the the memory of I mean I had fights before I'd grown up in an unbelieving home and I, I the memory of past struggle and pain doesn't always make the present struggle easier, does it? Actually, it can be more intimidating. You've been hurt. You tried. You evangelized, and it got painful. You worked for the Lord, and, and, and now you see all that work, and the intimidation only rises. It can feel like, as you look at the mission field, you're standing on the eve of a great battle. But a good general knows that on the eve of battle, his men need the encouragement, the stirring words, the call to war. And we've just had that in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, haven't we? Men, get ready to fight with all your might. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58, summarized. But a good general, as the battle lines are drawn up, knows that he also has to draw together his words to encourage the hearts of the men who face the struggle in front of them. And that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 16, the chapter that I would now turn you to. In 1 Corinthians 16, how did the Corinthians feel as they faced the unimaginable task of evangelizing Corinth, that cesspool of humanity? How did they feel? Intimidated? And as a, as a church, the church in Corinth had been in such a mess. And you can see 1 Corinthians as this great effort on the part of the Apostle Paul to bring the Corinthians from the mess that they were in in so many areas right up to this climactic moment at the end of the book where he's ready to call them from all their mess to their duty to prepare them to be ready to work for God. And, and 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in my conclusion, is the great climax of 
the book. And, and after that, people say, oh, you know, Paul's done, and he's just, he's just kind of throwing out a few random exhortations as he wraps up the book, and it's all about his, his travel plans and, you know, supporting the saints in Jerusalem, and there's these interesting passages, but do you know, um, he's not done. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he's telling them, look, on the basis of all this hope of the resurrection, on the basis of everything I've told you so far, if you really believe all of this, it's time to work. But now he knows they're going to be feeling intimidated. Let me ask you, what kind of what kind of exhortation, what kind of encouragement do you need to be ready inwardly in your heart to face the work that you have and to do it? Well, um, this morning I want to give you four of Paul's eight exhortations that he gives in chapter 16 to prepare your heart to work for God. They're all found here in chapter 16, verse 13, the four that I will give you. I will mention the others, but this is what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say, to encourage intimidated Corinthians so that they would be inwardly ready to work for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Four exhortations to prepare your heart to work for God. Let's go. Number one, be watchful. Be watchful. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint you. A number of people in the room say, I can do that. I can binge watch. I can, I can do Netflix all night. It's got nothing to do with screen time. This is, this is the same word Jesus uses in Mark chapter 13 when he says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I made the mistake of reading that last thing at night. It's really bad. You're trying to get to sleep and the last words of your Bible reading of the day are stay awake. Anyway, what does he mean here by stay awake? Does he mean stay up all night? Well, Jesus slept. That's how I reasoned myself to sleep. <laughs> um, so what does he mean? Be watchful. Stay alert. Awake. Are we supposed to just kind of pin our eyes open? A couple of matchsticks? Are you supposed to just drink coffee all night? Greek word, gregorete. You like Greek words? For those of you who are grammar nerds, uh, the imperative form of the verb gregoreto in Texas, it means all y'all must be alert. <laughs> so it's a command. It means watchful. It means remain in a constant state of readiness. If you give birth to a boy, that's a high likelihood in the Holland family, um, you might 
and you think you're going to be staying up all night, you might choose to call him Gregory, based on this word. I'm going to be awake, watchful. Anyway, uh, the first exhortation is that you need to be watching. Very simple. But watching for what? And that's our question. I'm saying that the context here is working for God. And I'm saying if you want to be working for God, you have to be watching. But I guess I need to back up a little briefly and and show you something because um, I I want you to know that this is not just coming out of my imagination. I'm saying here that the watching is to do with working because in chapter 16, um, it's... The whole theme is still working for God. Let me show that to you. These are not random exhortations. Paul isn't just kind of getting to the end of his epistle to the Corinthians, which was meant to be read something like a sermon in the church. Here you are, the church of God in Corinth, hearing for the first time the letter from Paul, and someone's standing, someone's reading it to you. This is a message, and as Paul comes to the end of his message, what's he doing? Oh, he's just throwing out a few random exhortations with no thought whatsoever. It's amazing the number of intelligent Bible commentators who will say Paul is the most ordered thinker on the planet, and then say it about the end of this great book that he's just throwing out a few random exhortations. Anyway, Actually, I believe Paul is still on his theme of doing the work of the Lord, and, and he, he's, he's, he's built up to it in 1558, and now he's, he's, yes, he's telling people his travel plans. Yes, he's concluding the book, but he hasn't finished his theme. Let me show you. Um, if you look carefully, of course, the key to good Bible study is to notice, isn't it, key words and phrases that the author uses repeatedly through a passage that clue you in to the fact that he's on a particular theme. You can see that. Look at verse 9. This is the context for verse 13. He's explaining in verse 9 his travel plans. He's saying, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because a great door for effective what? A great door for... Suddenly I've gone really loud. Is that me? A great door for effective work has opened up to him in in Ephesus. Verse 10, he says, make sure you take care of Timothy. Don't intimidate Timothy. Because, says Paul, what? He is doing the, what is it? Work of the Lord, as I am, says Paul. Verse 15, it's the household of Stephanus who he's commending because they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. These were were workers serving the saints. And, And And then he says, be subject to such as these and to every fellow, here's the word, worker and laborer. Two words we find in 1558. And and so I say that as Paul is is winding things up, he hasn't finished. He's he's bringing to a, a, a conclusion his book with several exhortations designed to encourage and prepare people to do what he's just told them they have to do, which is work for God. And, and the first one is that they have to be watching. But watching for what? That was my question. Okay? You with me? Well, well, well if, if the context is working for God, then obviously you need to be watching for things that would stop you working for God. That's the obvious implication, isn't it? And that's the main idea. If you go back to Luke 12 and you think about Jesus in Luke chapter 12, he's telling this parable 
Um, you'd have to be really quick to turn there. You can, 35. He, he says, stay dressed and ready for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake. There's our word translated watching in other versions when he comes. Truly, I say, he'll dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them if he comes in the third watch or in the, in the second watch or the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. Um, then he talks about some, some more in that parable I won't go into, but what does he mean by that? Thankfully, Peter didn't understand it. We can all be grateful that Peter didn't understand much. Um, because he asks the questions that we want to ask. Lord, are you saying this to about us or others? And in verse 41, um, he asks his question, verse 42, Jesus answers him with another parable, a parable to interpret a parable. It's helpful. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now, I don't probably need to tell you, but you have to understand, don't you, that not every point in a parable is comparable to some point in real life, is it? And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so the main thing is to understand the main point of the parable. The main point here is clear. Jesus makes it clear in verse 43, Luke 12, 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So it's talking about a servant who's doing the work that his master gives him to do. And the point is, if your master gave you work to do, you want to be busy doing it when he comes back. You do not want to be playing with your phone or knitting or gardening. Do you do gardening in the States? You have yards. Why don't you, why don't you do yarding? <laughs> anyway. Look at what Jesus says next. Truly I will say he will set him over all his possessions. And the picture in the parable is the faithful servant who's been given a job to do. And he's busy doing it when his master returns. Now, you, you can understand that parable, I'm sure. Are you his servant? I would be a bad pastor if I didn't stop for a moment and just ask you. No doubt someone is here in a room this size and you come to church, is it all about coming to church? Does Jesus want everybody to just come to church? Is that the mark of a true disciple of Jesus? Okay. Is he your master? Your master says you have work to do. Now, Whatever else you say, I went forward in a church, I, I prayed a prayer, I had an experience. Whatever else you say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Good, you need to believe that. But whatever you say, Jesus said, 
whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the master says, go out and make disciples of every creature. And that's for us. I mean, we have work to do. Are you his disciple? Is he your master? Could you say you will be found working for God? I'm just going to say it. If you ain't interested in working for God, you're not really his disciple. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Many are going to be saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't, didn't, we, uh, eat and, didn't you eat and drink in our home? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. And, and, and you know those passages, I'm sure, but friend, if you're here, you, you need to reevaluate if you're not interested in working for God. But, you know, I know that there's lots of, lots of people who say, I, I want to work for God. I, I am I desire to work to, for God, but, but then, you know, my heart's in for working for God. I, I even was working for God, but then all sorts of things happened. And, oh no, how did I end up here in my life? How did, I, how did it come to this? And I'm going to say, brother, sister, you weren't watching. What kind of things can destroy? distract us or divert us from working for God. You need to be watching for those. And we could, we could answer that question with a tirade against social media, couldn't we? And we could list out all the things, all the many things that can eat up your time. But hey, there's anti-social media as well, isn't there? And then there's gardening and all sorts of other, you know, legitimate occupations, hunting, we don't have anyone in my congregation who, when the hunting season starts, find themselves unable to give time to working for God. Nobody. I don't know that there is a hunting season in London. There is? <laughs> okay. There is, and Rick knew about it. <laughs> well, there are lots of diversions, but then there are outright temptations, aren't there? Jesus said to his disciples in Gethsemane, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as the devil, Peter told us to be sober-minded and watchful, 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking Someone to devour. And I guess the point is really simple. You're wanting to serve God. Maybe you've even thought through and planned your work for God. And you're like, I'm in. But then there's the devil who wants to draw you away. And then there's your own flesh. And there's the world with all its diversions. And the question comes, brother, sister, are you being watchful? Will you wake up tomorrow morning with an extra alarm that means for you, today I will be watching for anything that will divert me from working for God? Well, if you will, you've got the exhortation. Some people are not even conscious that there's a fight. 
there is a fight. And, and so our, our next exhortation from the Apostle Paul is, is, is along the same lines. Stand firm in the faith. This is talking, number two, about not being knocked off your position, like a Roman soldier with spikes in his shoes so that he can stand in the slippery battlefield against the pressure and the attack of the foe who's slipping and sliding all over the place. Stand firm in, and it's in the faith note, the faith once delivered to the saints. There is a faith. There's a body of teaching handed down to us by the Lord and through the apostles and the prophets. And if you don't stand firm in that body of teaching, oh, the horror of getting to the day of days and realizing that contrary to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, all your labor has been in vain. Horror. I can't think of anything more horrible. I know that I know that it's possible to be knocked off a firm position standing in the faith. I've watched it happen to people. And it chills my bones. Paul said when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, elders in, in, on the beach in Ephesus, Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Why, elders of a church, must you take such care over watching yourselves and, and, and all the flock? Why? I know that after my departure, says Paul, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own number will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So there's this danger from without, people coming in, and there's a danger from within, people rising up, and the danger comes with people speaking twisted things. If they weren't twisted, there'd be no danger. <laughs> if, if the proponents of error spoke plainly, we'd all boot them out the door. But there are people who come with weasel words and cleverly des de designed deceptions. And they come to draw away disciples after them. And, and, and Paul tells the elders, day and night I didn't cease to warn you with tears. You remember? Because he looked out at a crowd of people like this and he saw the devastation in the flock caused by people who came with twisted words. And so he says in, in another place to the Corinthians, what you have to do is stand firm in the faith. You have to know the faith and you have to know it well enough to spot twisted words. I go to the gym sometimes just to 
show myself how unfit I am, and I puff, puff, puff along on the, the uh, treadmill maybe, and I was there one time watching some people. There was a guy and his friend, and they were practicing boxing, and one of them was wearing a super suit. I don't get to wear a super suit at the gym. It wouldn't look so super. Um, I wear nice baggy clothing and um, think about how my body's going to be in heaven. But in the meantime, <laughs> in, maintenance, in maintenance mode, I, I'm, I'm happy to try to do what I can. And there was this guy, and he was in his super suit, and they were pra practicing boxing. And from time to time, he'd come at the, the guy in the super suit would come over to the other guy, and he'd, he'd get hold of him, and he'd push him. And then he'd show him, he'd say, you know, you, I couldn't hear what he was saying. I was listening to John MacArthur, but um, he'd, he'd, he'd show him, you're on your back foot. You need to, be, you need to bring your weight forwards. And, and if you're going to withstand some pressure, you have to be ready to stand firm because the boxer's going to come against you and you've got to be on your front foot. And, 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 and then there are those times, you remember them, when Peter was back-footed. Some men came up from Jerusalem, from, and they brought with them a teaching, and then Peter and, and Barnabas were carried away, and, and Paul called it hypocrisy in Galatians 2. And you say, if Peter can be unbalanced and lose his firm stance in the faith, if Barnabas, the son of encouragement, can, can get knocked off his firm position what about me? And then you look around and you think about church history and you see one after another after another good men and twisted words and pressure from one form or another has knocked them off. And so you say, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free, says says Paul to the people in Galatia on the back of all of this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery again. So let me ask you, brother, sister, Christian, you know the faith? Are you getting up in the morning and saying, I will stand firm? Pressure will come to you. Are you a teacher? You know, don't you? You're going to be pressurized. Are you a doctor? You know what the pressure will be. But there will be pressure from the world. There will be Satan trying to draw you away and your own flesh with all its attractions trying to kind of pull you and unbalance you, but brother, sister, you must stand firm if you want to work and get to that day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, I must fly by some of my notes and fly on to the next point. So that was number one, be watchful. Number two, stand firm in the faith. I think you know where I'm going, don't you? Number three, ladies, act like men. <laughs> Not so much ladies, men as opposed to women, but 
I'm, although I'm going to say that the word in the Greek does have that idea of masculine as, a, as opposed to feminine. Uh, I, I believe in women being feminine. I'm a champion of uh, that kind of feminism. <laughs> but um, this, is, this is different. This is act like a man... And I think if you, it really helps. It solves all the exegetical problems at this point, seminary students. If you understand that the context is working for God, all of the argument in about 90% of the commentaries, you can just ditch it, because it, it's obviously talking about working, and he's talking about act like a man and not like a boy. Simple. I, I can't forget the time I had to learn to act like a man, to work like a man and not like a boy. Uh, it was my first ever summer job. 13, age 13, maybe 14, and uh, I had a job in a beautiful garden in a, in a manor house in the county of Kent, and you can just imagine that, and <laughs> I, I had to work for my brother-in-law's father, who happened to be an ex-member of the SAS, that's our elite special forces. He still didn't take any prisoners, and he, he gave me a a sledgehammer, he gave me a, a pickaxe <laughs> and a wheelbarrow, and he said, see that slab of concrete, an old greenhouse base? I want you to break it up, load it up, ship it out behind that hedge over there, and that piece of ground needs to be turned into a vegetable patch. And so, you know, the boy in me got to work, you know, and the sparks flew, and, and my hands started to become red. And I just I had a few... I, after half an hour, I had one chunk of concrete. <laughs> this big, and I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the size of the slab, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be here for weeks. <laughs> and now the boy in me... As, as the, the redness turned into blisters and the blisters began to bleed and the muscles that I didn't know I had began to hurt, and the boy in me wanted desperately to go home. Mom, I've had enough. <laughs> but inside the boy was someone who desperately wanted to be a man. And I knew that being a man meant men don't quit when it gets hard. Men don't quit when it hurts. Even if you've been hurt before, you face the struggle. You face the pain. And men work because they have to, because they must provide, because they must care for, they must defend. And there are these male metaphors in the Bible, and some of them are soldiering, and some of them are athletic, and, and yet, ladies, you are also told to fight the good fight. You are also told to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing misogynist in any of that, in any of those male metaphors. And this is another one, but sisters and brothers, if you are going to do your work for God, it will hurt. You may even shed some blood, but Christians are called to work like men. 
And so I call upon you today, if you want to get to the end of your life and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, it's going to take you all manning up inside. Because there's an immeasurable task. And you say, I don't have it in me. I just, I don't know what I would do with that. And so Paul says, fourthly, be strong. He said, but I still don't have it in me. How do I, how can I be strong? I am not strong. And, 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 and so I'm going to say to you, thankfully, if you look carefully at the Greek, this is a passive imperative. It's a passive command. It's a passive verb. You say, what's a passive verb? Well, a passive verb is an action that's done to you. You say, but how can I be commanded to be stronged? And the answer is, the command is better translated, perhaps, be strengthened. You say, oh, yeah. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord, didn't he? And then you say, oh, yes. Jesus said... Without me, you can do, let's hear it, nothing. But Jesus also said, with God, all things are possible. Paul said, his strength is made perfect in my, what's the word, weakness. And so you say, I am weak. And, and, and the Bible says, yes, that's right. And the task in front of you is unimaginably hard. And yes, that is right. But the Bible also says in James, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. So let me ask you, does God command you to do something, go into all the world, make disciples of every creature, which God does not have the ability to enable you to do? Stupid question. So, do we or do we not have the promise of the presence and help of the one who is called the, the helper? who also happened to make the universe. Do we, not, do we or do we not have the promise that the one who said go and make disciples also said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So these are just four exhortations from the pen of Paul, but from the heart of the Holy Spirit, to our quaking hearts as we look at the mission field. And I hope you've heard them. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. There are four more in this passage. For those, you can go to our church app and download part two of this message, which is part four of a series called Working for God. But 
for today, I'm going to call upon you as a faithful preacher of God's Word. Paul wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You need to ask yourself if you're here today, do you love God? It's a scary prospect, isn't it? If you, if you have no interest in working for God, you don't love God, you're not yet saved. Make it your priority today to seek the one who came to, to seek and to save the lost. But if you love the Lord and you want to work for the Lord, but in your heart you've been intimidated by the size of the mission field, hear these, hear these calls to you through the Holy Spirit, and then we're not asked to go out and to, to, to make disciples of every single person at the same time, are we? If I can put it like this, we're asked to pick up our Bible pickaxe and our Bible sledgehammer and apply it faithfully and laboriously and steadily to one soul at a time until the job is done.